0: hello and welcome back to another episode of our foundations my name is joshua today's episode will be our final episode on this series on agorism so we've covered what agorism is from multiple perspectives and looked at a few individual examples and now it's time to look at some more communal examples of agorism in practice if you are following along with our normal structure of the podcast, we started with our episode related to government and agorism, and then markets or money and agorism, and then education and agorism, and how all those things work within agorist philosophy. Then our themes episode was the one last week on agorism in action with some individual examples, and today is our case study episode where we'll look at some very specific case studies, some specific examples, and these will be more communal since we covered individuals last time. Now it's time to talk about more larger groups, more societies that are following these philosophies and the agorist mindset in general and acting that out in not only their own personal lives, but the lives of their community and their society that they've set up. So we'll start off as far back chronologically as I'm going to go with these examples and that will be back to just before the Reformation. So the early Reformists back in the 1400s, we'll talk about them, the Taborites and the Hussites. And then related to that somewhat would be the Anabaptists. They were the ones that came out of the Reformation movement along with the Lutherans and the Calvinists. And so I'll cover some more modern Anabaptists and we'll talk about the For example, the Mennonites and the Bruderhoffs, some other examples that are currently living out these lifestyles in today's society. Then we'll go to another location. We'll go to Mexico. I've got two examples in Mexico, one where there are communities that have set up more of a communal marketplace and their own localized money that has some interesting qualities. Then we'll move on in Mexico to Charan, where the locals threw out both the cartels and the government and basically threw out everybody and then governed themselves And we'll talk about that a little bit. And then the final thing, which will be probably a little longer than these others, will be Rojava. And I've mentioned that before on other episodes. Last week I mentioned Amir Taki, and he has been to Rojava. That's actually where I heard about it to begin with was in an interview with him. But I did a lot more study after that, listened to multiple interviews of people that have been there or are there, and looked into their governing philosophy And it's been very interesting, and that's another very good example of something that's going on now in current day. Uh, This one's actually in Syria, or mostly in Syria. I think they technically have some territory in Iran and possibly cross into a few other borders, but I'm not positive on that. But mainly in northeastern Syria is where they're located now. And so we'll talk about them and what's going on with Rojava and that area. So let's start off with the Taborites. So to get some background here, you roughly start with John Wycliffe, and he came out and had some interesting ideas that were very against what was being preached in the church. Now, the church and Christianity at this time was mainly just the Catholic church with the Pope and the bishops and that whole structure. That was pretty much it when it came to Christian religion and The Pope and the Church not only ruled over religious matters in many countries, they pretty much ran the states as well. Now, you didn't really have nation states the way that we think of them today as much at that time, but the Pope and the Catholic Church did control a lot of society all over Europe, into Asia and Africa, what we consider the Middle East now. They had a lot of territory, a lot of places, and a lot of power. So in ways the church was the state in many aspects. Well, you had John Wycliffe that first came around and basically said that what the church preaches and does does not really match up with what the Bible says. He actually read the Bible for himself and realized that it is very different than what the Catholic church is preaching. So after him came Jan Hus was kind of his direct heir and he continued these types of teachings his teachings also spread and went even further And this was one of the early Reformation movements that happened before you had Lutheran and the printing press and all this kind of stuff. So obviously, the church was not very happy with Jan Hus. He got in a lot of trouble. There was some conflict between his king and the pope, and there were demands to stop preaching. He finally went to a conference with the church, and the church condemned him as a heretic, and he ended up being burned at the stake. So he was martyred for his beliefs. An interesting aspect about Jan Hus is that he believed that violence was wrong, that it was immoral, that we should love our enemies and love everyone, and that we should not be involved with wars and violence and fighting. And that's interesting because the people that came after Jan Hus, his kind of direct disciples are known as the Hussites. And they actually were very militant, at least the main branch of them were. And this is where it gets into the Taborites that actually relate to this episode that I'm talking about. So that should give you at least a little bit of background information on where all these ideas come from and what's going on. Well, you had a group of Hussites that are called the Taborites. And that's because they located themselves in a city called Tabor. And that was named after a mountain in the Old Testament of the Bible. And this was kind of a fortress city. It was up on a hill. They fortified it greatly. And these Taborites were known for being very mighty warriors. They actually started the concept of having a circle of wagons. So if you think back to like the Wild Wild West where you had the wagons and they would make themselves into a circle and protect the women and children on the inside. And the men would have the guns and shoot out from every side. They're protected on all sides and they would kind of fortify a position. Well, that's what the Tabarites would do. And it was very innovative for their time. As far as the fighting style, they also had firearms that they used and they had some other interesting tactics and weapons that worked very well. They actually defeated Multiple crusades. I believe there were five crusades against the Hussites in total, if I remember right. And the main general that was leading the Taborites actually was undefeated. He was one of only a handful of people throughout history that is known as being a great general that was completely undefeated. So that's also pretty interesting. They were very successful, but they're also very hated because of mainly their beliefs. I'm going to read a quote from some of the writings of the Taborites. Now, they taught, quote, "...in these days there shall be no king, ruler, or subject on the earth, and all imposts and taxes shall cease. No one shall force another to do anything, for all shall be equal brothers and sisters." As in the town of Tabor, there is no mine or thine, but all is held in common. So shall everything be common to all, and no one own anything for himself alone. Whoever does so commits a deadly sin. So as a consequence of these ideas, the Taborites concluded that there was no longer a reason to have a king, they weren't going to have a king, but God himself should be the king over mankind and the government should be put into the hands of the people. So basically all princes, nobles, knights, whatever, were to be uprooted as weeds, pretty much, and utterly exterminated. They weren't going to make any payments or any taxes to any formal government, and they weren't going to abide by or give any recognition to any of the laws or regulations that were put into place by people in the official government. These laws or regulations would have been inventions of men and not of God. They were going to follow God according to their interpretation of the Bible, and anything that a common man would have to say about ruling over them basically was null and void. Now, they did have major problems with the Catholic Church, similar to Wycliffe and what Jan Hus was preaching, that they thought the church was corrupt, that they didn't think you had to go through through somebody else in order to pray or in order to read the Bible or basically in order to be a Christian, the Catholic Church was saying you have to be a member of the Catholic Church or else you're not going to heaven. That's the only way. And so these people read the Bible themselves and said, well, that's not really what it says here, so we don't believe you. And they declared that It was basically the end times, and they were going to form a communal society based on biblical accounts in the book of Acts, where everybody basically gave up all their possessions and all their goods and shared them all in common. They were going to break away from the state, not be involved with any official state or government. They were just going to rule themselves, so a very agorist philosophy there. And they declared the end to all taxation. So that's also a very agorist philosophy and one that I could definitely get behind. And so they did set up this society, and it was extremely successful. A lot of people came from many different other places, many different other peoples came, and pretty much everybody would sell their possessions. They would show up to the city of Tabor and give up their possessions or their money that they've sold it for. And all of these things would be held and divvied out by officials. And these officials were not really government officials per se. They actually had another interesting political system, and that was one of a direct democracy. This is one of the first examples in more modern times of a direct democracy. Democracy that we have an account of. And basically, everybody voted and everybody's vote counted. And they elected people to be in charge of these types of things of distributing the goods and deciding what they would do mil- militarily and how they would carry out their society. You know, all the decisions and management that has to be taken care of in any kind of society. The people that did that were elected directly by the people and so they had a direct democracy and they did have people in charge and managing and carrying out those roles but there was no official formal government they didn't elect a king and then that king had a whole council and they had a military and a police and all these different things that didn't exist so you basically just had these people that were directly voted on to handle all these management aspects and divvy out goods and that was about it and so with this structure all the people pretty much had what they needed the food was divvied out and all the supplies were divvied out They had kind of a utopian-type society and mentality. They did have control of multiple gold mines, so they had a good source of revenue coming in where they didn't really have to worry much about money should they need to buy anything from the outside. Uh, My understanding, I've ran across at least one source that said there were a lot of master weavers, which were apparently very valuable and could create some valuable tapestries and works. And so that was another good source of revenue. And so it was a very self-sustaining society and community. They did a lot of stuff for themselves, but then they could also trade with other communities and other um, societies or whatever and get the things that they did make. And so they basically set up a very agorist society in general way back in the 1400s at a time when you did have oppressive states when you had the pope and the catholic church that ruled over multiple dozens of states and you have this one little community that basically said no we're going to take care of ourselves we're not going to be involved with any of this stuff and basically deal with it and so yeah like i said the catholic church did not deal with it very well they called multiple crusades they tried to take them out But it didn't really work out very well for him. Now, eventually the city fell, but I believe it lasted for about 40 years. And I know this isn't a very long time. This wasn't an extremely successful society that kept going and going. They, They did last for a while, though. 40 years is quite a long time, especially when you are one small community fighting against the entire Catholic Church and entire nation states all grouping together and coming against you time after time. So they did fairly well for the circumstances that they were in. But that's the way that it went. Now, another interesting thing that I ran across was that Murray Bookchin, and his name will come up later, he called this an early example of anarcho-communism. And that's kind of going to be a theme in today's episode, will be more communal societies from a... I I want to say communist but I know it's kind of a dirty word but oh well that's kind of what it is anyway it's kind of communism or socialism or communal living whatever you want to call it and that's kind of the theme we're going to go with in today's episode the main reason for that is that the next set of episodes is going to culminate with anarcho-capitalism and that political philosophy and an explanation and all the arguments and objections to it and focus on that side of things, which the pretty much the opposite of anarcho-capitalism would be anarcho-communism if we're talking about a stateless society at least and carrying out the full potential of agorism as a political philosophy at least and so today we'll talk about the communal living stuff and then later we'll talk about more capitalistic societies so that's kind of why I've split it up this way and focused on this stuff in this episode now I mentioned Murray Bookchin he was the inspiration for a man we'll talk about later when we get into Rojava so when I talk about that I will refer back to Mary Murray Bookchin and he was into political philosophy and was definitely into anarcho-communism and set up some very interesting ideas and that was built upon later on and that was basically the founding principles for what ended up becoming Rojava. So we'll talk about him again later a little bit and get into what came out of his ideas specifically. So the next group I wanted to talk about were the Anabaptists. So coming out of the Reformation, there was a group that had a different way of going about things. So Martin Luther basically wanted to reform the Catholic Church, hence Reformation. He wanted to change things and make it better. He said it was corrupt and it was wrong in many different ways, and we need to fix this. We need to change this. Now, later, he kind of gave up and realized this wasn't going to happen, and you ended up getting division instead of actual true Reformation. But that was the goal to begin with. And even when Luther did split off, and then you had the Lutherans in general, they still kept most of the Catholic doctrine and the traditions. And basically, he said that if there's no direct contradictions in the Bible, then we might as well just, you know, keep going and honor these traditions. They're not hurting anything. And we'll just take out the things that are in direct contradiction, which there were plenty of. And so that was his philosophy. Well, then you had John Calvin, and he had a little different take on things where the Calvinists actually took out as much as they could, in a sense, and basically only left what was directly in there, in the Bible, and had some... Other theological differences that we're not really going to get into, because that's not the point here. This is not a religious podcast. But there were a few different camps, and they all were going about this idea of how do you actually live out what the Bible says from different standpoints, everywhere from we just need to make a few tweaks to the Catholic Church— to we need to set up our own independent church, to we need to get rid of as much as possible, to we need to keep as much tradition as possible. There are all different philosophies here. But the Anabaptist, where they come out of, is the idea that we should just throw it all out. Just get rid of it all, start from scratch, read the Bible, what it says, that's what we do, that's it. That's our theology. And so that's what they did. And this is where you get the Mennonites and the Amish, and the Bruderhofs and many different denominations that came out of the Anabaptist tradition. The term Anabaptists comes from the idea that baptism is something that can only happen if you are making a conscious choice. So the idea is that when you say that you believe in God and want to follow God, then you are to be baptized. And that's what the Bible tells you to do, so that's what you do. And the Anabaptists were saying that this doesn't really make sense if you're baptizing an infant as soon as they're born, which is what the Catholic Church was doing. And they were saying that, well, an infant, doesn't have the ability to make any decision about what they want to do with their lives and what they want to believe. And so baptizing a baby doesn't really do anything. It's pointless. So even if you've been baptized as a baby, you need to be baptized again once you truly believe that this is the way you want to live your life. And so hence the name Anabaptists, which is basically baptized again. And that's where they come out of. And again, they scrapped everything. They looked at the Bible, interpreted it that the way that seemed obvious to them. And they were fairly similar to the Hussites in their theology and the way that they thought this stuff should be lived out. And so I want to focus on some of that. The main group I'll focus on is actually the Bruderhoffs. And that's an interesting denomination that comes out of Anabaptist tradition. But I'll mention first the Amish and the Mennonites. So when you think of Amish and Mennonites, you probably think of a group of people, a society that set themselves apart from the world. They basically are stuck in the past. They don't have any modern technology. They probably think it's evil and it's bad. And they kind of are this strange, small sect of people that keep to themselves. And some of that is slightly true and some of it's very false. But That's what we think of. Now, the idea was originally that they didn't want to have to rely on the state. The state was evil. The state was wrong. The state was immoral. And society as a whole was also immoral and sinful. And so if you wanted to live out what the Bible says in a Christian religion and Christian faith— then you would have to separate yourself from both the state and society. So that's why they started living in their own communities and taking care of themselves. Now, the technology issue comes from the idea that they don't want to be reliant on these immoral institutions, on the state. And so the problem with that is that obviously you're not going to be able to get things like electricity If you can only get electricity through the state because that leaves you dependent on the state and you are not self-sufficient so as we've talked about agorism in general that's kind of the whole idea is that you are as self sufficient as you can be with as little dependence on the state and on institutions as possible and so that was the founding philosophy of the Anabaptists specifically the Mennonites and that is why when you look at them today They are not driving cars, and they don't have cell phones, they don't have internet, most of them. There are some small groups that have changed their ways, in a sense, and decided that some of this stuff is okay, but in general, that's not how most of them operate, and this is why. It comes from an agorist philosophy, before agorism was an actual philosophy, but they had that, and that's what they got out of reading the Bible. Now, the Bruderhofs were a branch that came off of Anabaptist traditions in the early 1900s. So, this started as a movement in Germany when the Nazis began taking power. And it began with one young family with five children. Uh, the mother was a philosophy student. And they really fell for the Anabaptist theology and their ideas, their political philosophy, their communal philosophy, all of these things. And so they felt that it was wrong to serve in the Nazi military. They also did not accept Nazi teaching either. And so they fell in line with the earliest Anabaptist traditions of nonviolence and peaceful communities. And they also decided to set up their community in a way that was directly based off of the church that's represented in the Book of Acts, where they sold all of their goods, they held all of their money and possessions in common, they shared them all, and just live together as a community. And so that's what the Bruderhof started to do. Now, they basically got forced out of Germany by multiple pressures. The secret police finally basically kicked them out, gave them, I think, 48 hours to leave, or they were basically going to get killed. And so most of them fled to England, where the church grew, and it grew bigger and bigger, and they started sprouting more communities. These communities later went to other countries, They came to America, and now there are communities all over the world that are Bruderhof communities. Now, it's not nearly as big of a denomination as most Protestant denominations, such as If you think of Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians or any of these other groups, the the Bruderhoffs are not nearly this big, but there are still many communities all around the world that are living this way. And like I said, they share all things in common. They believe that that's the way they're supposed to live, that nobody should be focused on building up their own wealth and their own store of possessions, but rather people should be community focused and communally focused within their own community that they have established, but also within the local community of wherever they lived. So unlike some of the other denominations, such as the Amish and the Mennonites to begin with, that wanted to separate themselves from society as a whole, the Bruderhof's kind of agreed with separating themselves from the state, hence the nod to agorism here and why I am featuring them, but they actually believe that they should be involved with the local community. They thought that the Bible says we should share this good news and this story and share it with other people that don't know about it and preach the gospel and all these things and so that's what they did they actually engage with the community and so they aren't necessarily as standoffish one might say as some of these other groups most of them do use modern technology they do put limits on that they don't think that it's basically all that good in many ways. There's lots of bad that comes with technology, and I think we can all agree with that and see that. And so they are careful with it, but they are involved with modern society. There are kids that go to college. Many of them do but if they do, obviously their parents aren't just going to pay for it. The parents don't have a savings account. They don't have money. The community holds all the money and all the funds. And so basically, if a student, a high school student, who is probably homeschooled within the community, if they want to go to college, then they basically go to the elders and say, this is what I want to do. And in general, the community says, okay, we'll pay your tuition. And they do, they pay their tuition and send them to college. So they are involved with the modern community and for money and financing, they usually have a business or multiple businesses or a factory or a farm or something where most of the people in the community will work and they'll all work together and they'll share in the rewards. Obviously, the community holds it in common and they interact and sell stuff with the outside world. So they might have a factory that produces a certain thing, then they would sell that in the marketplace and with the proceeds they would store that and buy what they need and save what they feel like they need to save and all that kind of stuff and that's how the society runs it's not that everybody earns an hourly wage that's in the community working in this factory they all just pitch in and then they all share in the rewards and so that's the idea again this episode focuses on on more communal living more of a communist utopian society and that's kind of what they have and it works for them I mentioned last episode about Amir Taki talking about ideologies and that societies really only thrive and succeed if there is a common ideology that everyone holds very strongly. And I believe that these are cases that kind of prove this out as well, because in general, most people in modern society would not be okay with this. This wouldn't work very well with. Many individuals and many groups in today's society, but it does work really well for these Anabaptist groups, and it's because they have a common ideology. They honestly believe that this is the way they're supposed to live and that they are dedicated to doing this regardless of what that means they're giving up or sacrificing in the modern world, they believe that this is the right thing to do, so they do it. And they have this ideology that keeps them grounded and keeps them dedicated, and it does work. Now, let's move on to Mexico, Mexico. And like always, I am horrible at pronouncing things, so I'll just go ahead and give you that caveat here, and I will probably mispronounce lots of stuff. As an example, if you have listened to an episode many episodes ago on the ideologies of the elite, where I went through different famous authors and philosophers and that kind of stuff, I pronounced Descartes as Descartes, and that is obviously very wrong, and I mispronounced, I believe, a few other names in that particular episode, and I've mispronounced many other things since. I am just bad at that sometimes, so sorry, that's just the way it is. It's not because I am dumb, or because I don't know what I'm talking about. It's usually because I've just read stuff and not heard it actually pronounced. So a lot of stuff I listen to audiobooks and podcasts and get a lot of information that way. And then I know how it's pronounced and how it's said. But if I'm actually reading a book or reading articles or something, I I really have no clue, I guess I just don't know. So that's reality. So Speaking of which, we have in Mexico different communities that are comprised of prosumidores, and these are a mix of a producer and a consumer. So everyone in the community is both a producer and a consumer. That's what they believe. And they have a monetary system, I guess, called monedas comunitarias. Communitarious. Uh, Yeah, that's the best I got. So this is the idea of communal or local currency. And these are not actual banknotes. They are not state pesos, which is what it would be in Mexico. This is not official money. These are just small local communities that basically have created their own money. And my understanding is that it's a slip of paper that basically says what it is, and then each time someone gets this note, or this, we'll call it a dollar, even though it's not a dollar, but this unit of currency, they'll sign the back of it. And so the idea is that as this currency circulates through the society, it gains credibility, it gains trust, it gains not necessarily value in the sense of what you can buy with it, but value in the sense that you can be pretty sure that this is a true uh, unit of currency. It's not one that someone just made up themselves and are trying to buy a bunch of stuff with these brand new things they're creating themselves. But if it has 10 signatures of people that you know in the community that have used and touched this specific note, then you can probably trust that it is a real note and it is circulating within your local community. And so what they do is once a year... All this currency is gathered up and everybody gives up what they have and then they distribute it out evenly all over again to everyone in the society in this, usually it's small communities. And so the idea is that you're supposed to circulate this currency, not accumulate it. You're not supposed to hoard up wealth. You're not supposed to be going after wealth. You're supposed to be living in your community, helping in your community, working. It's the idea of prosperity prosumidores, where you are a producer and a consumer, where you are producing for the community and contributing, and then you are also a consumer. You are also taking from the community, but it's an exchange here, and they use this local currency, the monedas comunitarias, as a form of money to facilitate this, and it's a form that they control locally, that they trust locally, that they use locally, and they don't really rely on the state. They don't really trust the state. And if you know anything about the state in Mexico, that's probably for good reason. And so they are true agorists. They take care of themselves in general. They interact off the books, so to say. I highly doubt they're paying any taxes. The Mexican government has actually come out and said that these communities are dangerous to national security because there are so many people throughout Mexico all over the country that are transacting outside of state control, which means the state doesn't get any taxes from it. So this is not just drugs or sex trafficking or some sort of very illegal activity. This can be just like what I'm talking about here, where you have groups and communities that are just buying and selling amongst themselves and keeping to their community, which... You know, by most people's standards, there's nothing wrong with that. By the government's standard, there's a lot wrong with that because they're not pitching in to the Mexican government. So bad them. And yeah, that's the situation going on there. So that's an interesting way that some of these communities have structured themselves. There was another example in Mexico that I wanted to mention, and that is a city called Chiron. And in this city... The locals basically got tired of corruption. They got tired of being bullied around. They got tired of the violence. There were murders and kidnappings and rapes that were happening on a regular basis. And the people got fed up. Uh, one account I read had women just coming out of all these buildings with makeshift tools and weapons and <laughs> kicking out these cartel members and government officials. So it Probably was a very interesting sight to see, but basically the town did throw out not only the cartels and the people involved in a lot of this illicit activity, but also the government officials, the police, and anybody that was there that was part of the formal government. The community said, hey, we are tired of all this and we are going to deal with things on our own. We're going to run our own society, and we are going to be self-governed and self-sufficient, and you guys can just get out of here. We don't want you here, and they kick them all out. So the locals actually do take care of most of the stuff that goes on. They handle the small crimes. They handle local defense. There have been no murders and no kidnappings in five years since this happened, and they are fairly successful community. There was also some issues with deforestation and companies coming in and tearing down forests that they weren't really treating the environment very well, and the community was also fed up with that, and so they have started regenerating the local forests and taking care of them and defending them from people that want to come and basically strip the land, and the community in general is pretty close-knit. They're pretty tight. Pretty much locals marry locals, and they don't leave the community, and not a lot of people come into the community, so it's fairly segregated and set apart and isolated in a sense, but they are living out a fairly agorist philosophy and community here, and again, it's another example of more communal living, but not to the extent of some of these others, but it is living outside of the state. They kicked out the state, and they are taking care of themselves. So another nod to agorism here. Now, the final example that I want to go over is Rojava, and that's the one that I personally found to be my favorite one to research. And this area is also known as the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, And this was declared independent in 2012. And the majority ethnicity, although it's not like 90% or anything, just the majority at least are Kurds. And so the Kurds are a people group that have pretty much been kicked around and put down for decades or centuries. And basically everyone in the area hates them. They're surrounded by enemies on all sides. You've got ISIS on one side. You've got Turkey that keeps kicking out the Kurds. Then they'll go into Syria. Then Syria will kick out all these Kurds and they'll go into Iraq. And then they will kick out all the Kurds as well. Pretty much the Arabs don't like the Kurds. Nobody likes the Kurds. So they have just been kicked around from country to country to country. And originally the idea was that they wanted to set up their own Kurdish state and have their own place. And that did end up happening. But there is another group. So they're called the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. They were communists. They were mainly focused on Marxism and Leninism, and were led by a man named Abdullah Okalan, And he was the leader of the party, and he was the one that was the driving force, but he ended up getting arrested in 1999. Now, while he was imprisoned, he started studying in-depth political philosophy, and he had a bit of a change in heart. So instead of being a diehard communist that believed in executing a lot of force to get your way, he switched his ideas to a new concept, a new structure called democratic confederalism. This is where Murray Bookchin comes back into play because Murray Bookchin was the one that Okalon was reading the most and getting most of his ideas from. Bookchin basically coined a lot of these ideas himself, and Okalon took those on and molded them and adapted them and came up with his own version of Bookchin's philosophies. I'll read a quote I found about democratic confederalism that kind of explains what the idea is. It goes like this. Democratic confederalism is a system of popularly elected administrative councils allowing local communities to exercise autonomous control over their assets while linking to other communities via a network of confederal councils. Decisions are made by communes in each neighborhood, village, or city. All are welcome to partake in the communal councils, but political participation is not mandated. There is no private property, but rather ownership by use, which grants individuals usage rights to the buildings, land, and infrastructure, but not the right to sell and buy on the market or convert them to private enterprises. The economy is in the hands of the communal councils, and thus, in the words of Bookchin, quote, "...neither collectivized nor privatized, it is common." So the way this looks on the ground level is that communities make decisions for themselves. There is no, again, there's no formal government. There is no set nation state here. They have divided themselves into what they call cantons. So currently there are three cantons that are under this type of societal structure of democratic confederalism, but there is no set official government that's in charge of everything. Instead, most everything is done at a very local level. So there's these councils that were mentioned that happen all the way down to your neighborhood level. So there might be some decisions on a street in your neighborhood or on some sort of rule about being out late at night or who knows what, whatever comes up, but on a very local level down to your street or your neighborhood There is a council that's going to meet up on a regular basis. You're not forced to go to it, but if you want to, you are welcome to participate. And that is how decisions are made. That is how they manage their society, that's how they manage their communities, is by having these small localized councils to make the decisions. Now, it's not just your neighborhood council that makes all your decisions. You're also going to have more of a block council that's made up of multiple neighborhoods. And then there will also be a city council that handles things on a city level. And so Anybody, again, can go to all of these councils, anybody that is at least going to be represented in the decisions that are made. And so oftentimes, local councils will send somebody to the district council or the city council, and there's just this whole level and hierarchy of councils where most of the decisions, and the decisions that matter and affect people on a daily basis in their everyday lives— Those decisions are made at a very local level. And then some of the bigger society-wide and more macroeconomic decisions, those are going to be handled at the city level or regional level or the canton as a whole. And so there are some decisions at this level. Any society has to be managed at many different levels, but the idea of This type of structure is that as much as possible is done at a very local level with direct participation by the members of the community and by the local community and they rule themselves without having a formal government or a formal system like that a political system but instead they use this very decentralized and localized political system now again I had mentioned Amir Taki, and he had talked about ideologies, and that's why Rojava works so well, and this really comes out when you hear people talk about these local councils, because so many people show up, and they might have a council meeting multiple times a week, and you have half the neighborhood show up. It's not just a few random people, so I live in America, and if there is a town meeting, You might get a room full of people, but there are thousands of people that are going to be affected by the decisions that that legislative body makes. And only maybe a few dozen actually show up to participate at all. And even then, they don't get a whole lot of participation. They don't have much say in what goes on. Whereas when we're talking about Rojava, so many of the locals actually actively participate in the governance of their local communities and their society as a whole, and that's just ingrained into who they are. That's what they believe. That is their common ideology, and it's not that they want to make sure that their society is extremely profitable and they're going to dominate everybody else and make a bunch of money and store up all this wealth and have all this cool stuff. That's not the case, because the whole point of the society is that there are no private ownership laws. There is no goal for making large profits. This is a communal society on a mass scale where everybody is trying to do what's best for the community. Now, in addition to the more localized ideology, this is also something that works well when you are in more of an eastern area. So if you compare western thought to eastern thought on a very macro-level broad view here. The Western world is very focused on individual liberties, individual rights, individual choices and profits and capitalism, that kind of stuff, whereas the Eastern world is very focused on society and on the community and on the family unit, and basically it's much more communal. And so you have this difference between collectivist, philosophy in the east as a whole and more individualistic philosophy in the west as a whole now the west is shifting more towards the opposite direction and the east is also shifting more in the opposite direction so it's interesting how that's playing out but that's over the course of centuries as a whole this is still something that is true and so that kind of makes sense why this works so well in the middle east for example it's partly because of the way their societies have always been structured and always been focused and what they have believed. And then you have this group, the Kurds and the other ethnicities that are with them that have these strong ideologies towards freedom and equality. And all of this is paired in a collectivist mindset and it is structured and held together through this system of democratic confederalism where they actually have a system set up where they can manage their entire society and manage it well without a government and hold to all of these ideologies and these goals so it's really cool and they've done a lot of good stuff with this this has been established since, like I said, 2012. So it's not that, you know, they just overthrew somebody and they kicked out their government and now they've been there for two years and it's successful. Well, no, this has almost been there for a decade. This is going fairly well. It's a pretty good society. Now, I mentioned that they are big on equality. So in the Middle East, There are some big issues with equality when it comes to gender equality, at least. And women are not generally given the same amount of rights as men are. They are not often looked upon as having the same value as men. And this is a problem to many people. I'm sure you can probably see why people might not like that, especially women. And so when it comes to this society under democratic confederalism, There are some specific rules that help mitigate that. So number one, in general, the society has an ideology of freedom and equal rights and equality in general. So as a general rule, they do not have anywhere near the same beliefs and actions towards women as their neighboring countries of Iraq and Iran and Syria have. So that's already not really nearly as much of an issue. And that's how they draw in a lot of people that come there is because of that. But in order to make sure that this is the case and to enforce this, there are special women's councils. So a women's council is obviously made up of women and they are at many different levels as well, from a very local to a very broad level. And a women's council has the right to veto any decision by any other council if it has to do with a women's rights issue. So they have a lot of power, and they have their own councils, and the main purpose of their councils is to handle women's rights issues. Anything that is specifically oriented towards women, these women's councils are to make those decisions, which it makes sense it's kind of like the idea of having a neighborhood council decide neighborhood decisions you have a women's council decide decisions towards women that kind of makes sense and then especially in a place that's surrounded by societies that really put down women and do not value women and take away women's rights then you can see where this fits in and why in other councils and other groups, there is a requirement of a 40% minimum participation of women that need to be represented in every council and on every board or group that meets on an official level. And so you're not going to have Nine men and one woman, and say, Oh, well, women are represented. No, it is mandatory that 40% at a minimum have to be women on any group that meets that is making decisions about their society. So that's another forced way of making sure that there is going to be gender equality. If there is a role that someone is elected to, and people vote and say, hey, this person or this office should be in charge of this aspect of society. It's not just going to be one person. There is always going to be a man and a woman that basically co-share that role in handling whatever that position is. Now, I said they don't have a formal government. It, it's all very loose interpretation. It depends on how you interpretate it. It depends on your perspective Technically, this is a political system, and therefore it is a government, because there's people making decisions about the society, so technically, I guess, those could be government officials, but it is nothing like any modern government that we have today, anywhere else in the civilized world, and so from that definition, it is not a formal government, but rather a decentralized form of governance that is highly localized and places the power in the hands of the individual citizens of these regions in these areas. So they don't actually have their own official nation state. They don't have official borders. They don't have any of this stuff. They do, though, have a military they have multiple militaries and militias there is actually a purely women's militia that used to be part of the normal militia and they split off and now there is a militia that is just women and then there are other militias that are mostly men and women i think there's one other that's just men there's one that's just women and there's others that are co-ed in a sense And so they do definitely believe that they should fight for their freedom and to defend themselves and those around them. They actually were one of the first groups to stop ISIS when ISIS got really big and started taking over all these towns and cities and moving through these countries in the Middle East around them. These people from Rojava, these militias, were one of the first to actually hold a city against an ISIS attack and fight them off and fend them off. And then pretty much once they had won, then America sent a few troops in to help out and basically claim victory. That's how we roll. But you do see that they are a very effective militia, and they are surrounded by enemies, so they kind of have to be. When you've got ISIS on one side that basically really hates everything you stand for, Turkey on another side that hates everything you stand for and resents you for breaking apart from their state. You have Syria, that basically is the exact same story. Then you have Iraq on the other side, and you've got all these Arabs that necessarily believe something that's contradictory to your own ideologies of women's rights and things of that nature, uh, religious beliefs, all this kind of stuff. You you have to have a strong military because or else you're just going to get wiped out. Everybody hates you on all sides. So there's not much of a choice there. But they have been able to survive and they have been able to be successful and even to thrive. So I mentioned that the community owns most of the property and businesses, that it's not individuals that are becoming entrepreneurs, starting a business, making profits. That's not really the way it works. The way it works is local communities own property and own businesses and run them. And you have these councils that make decisions on how these businesses are ran. So it's a very communistic uh, look at how to run an economy, but one that actually works um, very different than pure communism. And so... When you look at the stats, roughly three-fourths of all property is owned by the community, and roughly a third of all production in their economy is managed by workers' councils. So, like I mentioned, you have these workers' councils that basically will run a business or will run a co-op, and most things are co-ops and are community-owned and ran this way, and it's becoming more and more so. So that is the trend that it's going towards, and that's how the society is roughly structured. Now, it doesn't mean that everything has to be this way, but most of it's set up in such a way that that's the way it's going to work. And so this is definitely a very collectivist mindset and society, but it does work for them. Another important aspect that I had mentioned before again, and I will reference Amir Taki again, but he had talked about how these people, these individuals and citizens of this region are very highly educated and especially educated in political philosophy. They have taken the time to actually read about political philosophy. They discuss political philosophy. They are well-versed in different ideas, different philosophies, different political views. They know this stuff. They have learned this stuff. They discuss this stuff. They're actually educated in this stuff. It's not like taking a class in a typical Western college on political philosophy where you memorize a certain amount of stuff, you spit it out on a test, write a few essays, and you probably forgot a year later. That's not how they are. They truly know this stuff. If you've listened to this podcast For a while, then you know my views on what true education is and the lack thereof in modern society. Well, these people are actually truly educated when it comes especially to political philosophy. And this really makes the fact that they are highly involved at a local level with their own governments very important because they actually know what they're talking about. They actually know what is important. They know what they do need to focus on and they know how to carry that out and how to do it. So it works really well. If you had the average local community neighborhood, let's say, in the average city in America, and they all met together and you had a 100 people, they probably just have no clue what's going on. They don't really know how their own government works. They don't really know about most of the issues in their community. They don't really care. They probably don't want to be there. They'd rather be sitting at home watching Netflix or flipping through Facebook or probably watching Netflix while flipping through Facebook or whatever it is they do with their evenings. But it's probably not going to be reading Plato or Bookchin or anything else. It is going to be purely being entertained. And they would usually rather do this than be involved with anything related to Political philosophy or localized governance or something that requires active effort and input and involvement. This just doesn't really work, or I I should say, wouldn't likely work in the typical Western city. But In Rojava, this works extremely well, and it's because of their ideology, it's because of their culture, it's because of their education, and it's because of this system of democratic confederalism that has been set up and devised and followed that actually allows this to work. It gives it structure, and it gives it a more formalized system and way to implement these things, and again, it works. So that's everything that I was going to cover in today's episode. When you come back next week or with the next episode, you will be introduced to the idea that government is immoral. So I am breaking away from the typical structure of having an episode on government, then one on money, then one on education, then themes, then case study. Instead of doing this... The next few groups of episodes will be all focused on one area. So this next series will be focused on government. The following will be focused on money and then the next on education. And it'll be a full th- set of three episodes on the subject this one will be government and then there will still be a themes episode and a case study episode related to that and then move on to the next series so all of these are going to focus on the future in general it's going to look at alternatives to a lot of these things so what is an alternative to our current really crappy modern government that is out there in the world Pretty much anyone you look at is going to be corrupt, it's inefficient, it's immoral, it's all these things. What alternatives are out there? And so that'll be this first series. First, we have to look at, you know, is government actually immoral? Let's make a moral judgment about government. Then let's look more on a practical level, efficiency and effectiveness. How does a modern government hold up to this type of scrutiny? Next, we will look and see if there is any way to actually have a government in today's world that is moral and is efficient and effective. Is it possible to have a government that actually meets all of these qualities? Is that possible at all? I argue that it is possible that there are systems that could be set up that could meet all of these requirements even in today's world. And so I will present my ideas on that. Then I'll look into some alternatives to government in general, and that's mainly just going to be anarcho-capitalism. So what is that? What does that look like? Will be one episode. That'll be the themes episode. So after basically tearing down modern government, then the whole theme is that government doesn't work. And so the point is, what do you replace it with? I can't just give you a problem and tear it down without telling you, hey, there's another option here. And so that will be the presentation of the other option. Then for the case study episode, we will focus on the objections of anarcho-capitalism. So anytime you present an idea for a stateless society, you're always going to get the question, first off, usually, well, who builds the roads? Or how are you going to have national defense? Or how do you keep crime down? How do you punish criminals? How do you deal with X, Y, Z issue? And so there will be an entire episode dedicated to these types of questions and looking at these problems and criticisms of a stateless society, specifically of anarcho-capitalism. And then we'll move on to a full set of episodes and series on alternative forms of money, and that'll be blockchain and cryptocurrency, do a whole series on that. And then alternative education, where we'll do everything from charter schools and magnet schools to homeschooling to unschooling to college alternatives all kinds of stuff related to that and then we'll look more further into the future and so that's kind of what's coming up over the next few maybe dozen episodes and uh the end of season one we are actually getting near the end roughly we're probably three-fourths of the way through season one And that's what the next upcoming group of episodes will be. So hopefully that is appealing to you. And I encourage you to come back and listen in to all that stuff. This podcast in general, if you were not aware, is chronological. The whole season, all of season one is meant to be listened to in its entirety. So ideally you start at episode one and you make it all the way through episode, who knows what, 60 or whatever it ends on. That's the idea. So hopefully you will do that because these concepts and these ideas, they do build on each other. And ones that may seem like they're kind of irrelevant and it's like, well, you know, why do you talk about that? You never talk about it again for the whole rest of the season. Well, there are more seasons that are being planned and basically you you need to be aware of all of this stuff in season one And at least have this background knowledge. And a lot of this or some of this, depending on who you are, you're already going to have been exposed to throughout your life, throughout your studies, throughout your research, throughout your schooling, whatever. But the idea is to give you a refresher on the things you know, give you a different perspective, usually a contrarian perspective on things that you have already learned or been taught. And introduce you to many concepts that you might not have been exposed to or been aware of. And so that is what Season 1 is. It is the foundation of our foundations, pretty much. And so then we'll build the podcast from there and get on to uh, more detailed stuff, more analytical stuff, more theoretical stuff, philosophical stuff. It Yeah, we'll go from there. So... I would encourage you to send me an email or send me a message on whatever platform you so choose and let me know what you think about this podcast. Give me some feedback. Let me know what you would like to hear, what topics that you have enjoyed, which ones you have not really cared much for, and what you would like to see covered in the future. I am currently planning Season 2. I'm in the very beginning stages of... Organizing some ideas and doing a lot of research related to what season two is going to be covering So if you do have input on that and you are listening to this episode before season two starts Then you might be able to have some input on that The main input would come from the patreon community So if you want to donate to the podcast and support me and support me hopefully eventually actually having a real website, but at least uh, pitching in for the hosting fees that are paid for in order to host this podcast and any other equipment or anything else I need, then it would be greatly appreciated if you would like to donate. And the main way of doing that is through the Patreon page. There's a link for that in the show notes. It's patreon.com slash our foundations, but also in the show notes are some cryptocurrency addresses. So, if that's more the way you roll, then you are welcome to send me crypto donations. If you do so, then please do let me know in another form. Send me an email. The email account that I use is an encrypted service, ProtonMail. So if you are a privacy-centric person, then use your own encrypted service and use a VPN and just get me a message, let me know, and give me a way to give you stuff because If you do make donations and the suggested amount is $4 a month, roughly a dollar an episode, then you get things for that. I will give you some bonus episodes. I might give you some merchandise. Who knows? You'll get stuff and you'll have input on what the podcast will be in the future. I look at anybody that's given a donation. They get basically first dibs on what they want. And I also greatly value input from any other listeners, so everybody else, please still do send me input, but the first group will be anybody that's given a donation, so if you are donating through crypto, I don't know who you are, that's kind of the point of crypto, which is pretty cool, we'll cover that, but you need to let me know who you are, roughly, give me some way of giving you something so that I can dish out these perks to you, whereas if you just use the Patreon page, it's kind of automatic, so... Those are your options. If you would like to support the podcast but are not going to give financially with money or crypto, then you are welcome to leave me a rating or leave me a review. Even if you are listening to this on the website or on a different podcast player that doesn't have the option of leaving a rating, you can create an iTunes account or you probably already have one or a Stitcher account or whatever, and those actually do allow you to leave reviews and leave ratings. Usually you just click a star. It's pretty simple. If you leave a review, that's even better. If you want to write a few words on what you think about the podcast, that is a great way to support the podcast. Also, spreading the word and letting people know if someone is interested in this type of stuff, let them know about this. And if they're interested, they'll listen. And hopefully they will be. If not, so be it. But I do appreciate it. When any of you share the podcast with other people, that is extremely helpful if you would like to follow me on Twitter and the podcast Twitter handle, that would be at Foundations PC, which again, the link is in the show notes like everything else. The final thing would be the email address that is our foundations at protonmail.com. So I think that's everything that I could possibly say about ways to interact with the podcast. The Actually, the one other thing that I will say is that if you are still interested in getting a t-shirt or some sort of merchandise related to the podcast, then let me know. It doesn't really matter if you're listening to this episode as it releases in August of 2019, or if you're listening to this a year or two later, it doesn't really matter. You can send me an email and say, hey, next time you give out some t-shirts, I would like to be on that list. And... I will put you on the list. I have had a few people that have emailed me about that, about wanting some t-shirts, and they had not submitted their names when I did a t-shirt contest in the earlier episodes of the podcast. And so I've basically just accumulated a few names. And if I get more, then I will do another t-shirt giveaway. And so if I get enough people to make that worth it, then I'll do a giveaway, I'll do a drawing, pick some random people, and give out some free t-shirts. So if you're interested in that at any point in time, again, doesn't matter when you're listening to this, feel free to send me an email and I'll put you on the list and you might get some free stuff. So there's some more bonuses. So thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support. And with that, I am out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.